The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. If the name sounds like a business show to you, then you've got it all wrong. Kelly McMillan is the principal of McMillan Fiberglass Stocks and will talk about shooting for fun, competition, hunting, and self-defense. Now, here is your host, Kelly McMillan. Welcome to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. I'm your host, and for the next hour, we're going to talk about all things related to firearms, shooting, hunting, uh, whatever it might be. Got a couple of great guests. I'm joined here today by my co-host, Zev the Wolf Nadler, owner of bestdronage.com and the firearms concierge. Hey, Zev. Hey, how you doing, Kelly? Glad to be here. Uh, we are broadcasting from up north in beautiful uh, northern Prescott Valley or lower Chino. I'm not sure exactly where we are, but somewhere in between. Uh, I want to give a shout out to our good friend, Len Backus at longrangehunting.com. For all your long-range hunting and shooting needs, check out his website, longrangehunting.com. Well, you know, we try our best to have great guests on each week, and and I think we've done an extraordinarily good job uh, for the first um, three or four months of, of this program. And every week, I'm always excited to see who's coming up next. Uh, this week's no different because... Um, these guys both are, are longtime friends of mine, and I'm really excited to talk to them. But I do want to skip ahead one week just for a brief moment uh, and let everybody know that um, we're going to actually have Ted Nugent on the, the show next week. Um, and, and I know that that's, uh, you know, he's kind of a star and has a TV show and rock and roll and all that stuff. But, you know, Ted's a down-to-earth, you know, country boy, um, loves the outdoors, and, and I'm sure that we're going to have a lot to talk about. He's also kind of politically motivated, too, so we, we might get some politics in, in here, too. So if you're interested in listening to that at all, make sure you come back next week. But for right now, I want to introduce our first guest, um, Great friend. We've known each other for about 10 years. We have never had an opportunity to hunt together. The problem with him is he's always hunting for his television show. Now, you, you we talk about Ted Nugent having his own show. TJ Swanky has had his television show longer than anyone in Canada. It's the longest active-running outdoor show in Canada. TJ, welcome to the show, and thanks for being on. Oh, my pleasure, Kelly. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And yes, we do have to rectify that. Never um, hunting together. Yeah. Well, you just tell me what you want to go hunt for and, and where I need to be, and I'll, I'll join you. Um, I know <laughs> you live in a great state, so I could be down there in a hurry. <laughs> well, unfortunately, here you got to put in for and get drawn for everything you hunt. There are no landowners tags, and there's no way to to circumvent uh, you know putting in for the draw and, and waiting to find out whether or not you're going to get to hunt this season or not. That's one of the reasons why almost no television shows ever show hunting in Arizona because they just can't book a hunt here 
and you know set their time schedule so they get drawn and then they don't get drawn then they're they're out of a hunt so i was fortunate to have bob beck come down and film my elk hunt here in uh arizona a, a few years back and and that as far as i know may be one of the the few times that that the nation has ever seen true hunting the way it is in arizona yeah we were actually i drew an elk tag a couple of years ago and, and hunted down there as well and um, it's a pretty unique piece of the world that's for sure and you know, Kelly, you sent me to the uh, to the Game and Fish Summit yesterday, and uh, saw the director of AZ Game and Fish and some of the other folks that run that uh, that department. And they explained that they are working diligently to uh, shorten the time that you put in for the tag until you find out whether you've been drawn or not. So hopefully that'll help remedy it a little bit. You know, th- there's a a process now that everybody goes through. Uh, you give them your credit card when you put in online. And your credit card gets charged about a week before they let you know whether or not you've been drawn. So when that time comes out, everybody lets everybody know, hey, my card got charged. Uh, and then everybody looks at their, their credit card statement to see if they got a charge from Arizona Game and Fish. If they didn't, they, they didn't get drawn. And that's just a way to know a couple of weeks early. When you hunt, TJ, you, you hunt all over the world. So you you have to have relationships with the people that you hunt with because it's important for you to be able to book your hunts ahead of time, know what you're going to be hunting for, plan the number of um, episodes that you're going to get out of each trip. You know, it wouldn't be worthwhile for you to fly down to uh, New Zealand if you were only going to get one episode out of it. Um, you know what, Kelly, there is a lot of truth to that. There is a business side to it, but, um, you know, Vanessa and I do love hunting just so much. And like, I think every other hunter out there, we do have some bucket list items. Um, we've got Nepal on our list coming up here either next year or the year after. And I mean, it'll be three weeks out of our life for one episode of the show. So yeah, business does play into it. And, you know, it's great to go to places like Africa and things like that, or New Zealand where, you know, you can come out with, you know, three or four episodes, no problem. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, we're still, hunters and I think we still have the same dreams and aspirations as everyone else so sometimes we just do it for ourselves and take the cameras along that's one of the things that I've really enjoyed about getting to know you is that I I never thought of you as a a TV star Um, unlike some of the other hosts of some of the shows you see them in the the hallway at the the shot show or SCI or whatever. And the first thing that comes to your mind is, oh, that's the guy that's on TV. But that's never been the case with you and Vanessa. You guys have always really been just pure hunters. And it happens to be that you got a TV show. One of the fortunate people in this world that's been able to figure out how to make their passion into a business and, you know, uh, uh, make a living out of it. Well, I, I'm glad to hear you say that, Kelly, because I think that is what we strive for. And, you know, we make a lot of really poor business decisions to go have some fun and enjoy what we do. And I think we've kind of found that balance. It's, you know, it's definitely not all about making television. You know, it's great to take our viewers along on some of our hunts. And I, I guess I'd like to say we do, you know, a lot of hunts that are kind of outside the box as well. And, you know, they may not be hunts for everyone, but I know when I watch hunting on television, I don't want to see what I can do at home. I want to see what I can dream about doing somewhere else. And hopefully, you know, that's what we do for people. Hey, TJ Zev here. Uh, question for you. What, what province do you live in up there? 
so I live in Alberta. We're, I live just 45 minutes from the Rocky Mountains, and um, we're pretty blessed up here. I mean, I can still buy a general bighorn tag, and, you know, in 45 minutes of driving, I can be throwing a backpack on and going sheep hunting. The reason I ask is because uh, I had a bunch of boys from Alberta uh, used to come in every year to do a shoot and, and watch the, uh, the NASCAR races, and they keep inviting me up there for something they call a 90-mile-per-hour sled with a big bottle of Grey Goose. And I'm not sure I'm ready to go yet, but uh, <laughs> one thing I know you do have up there are the wolves as well. And we have a, you know, a big issue. You know, we have the pro-wolf. We have the con-wolf people uh, down here. How are wolves viewed in your province um, in general as far as hunting goes, as far as cattle goes? What's the situation? Um, you know what, I think anybody with any common sense knows that wolves need to be managed, and our provincial population is probably double even what the, the wildlife managers would like to see right now. So, um, you know, as a resident of Alberta, we can shoot as many wolves as we want any time of the year, basically. Um, it basically has to be a big game season on, and we can shoot wolves. We don't need a license or anything like that. So, And then on private property, they can be shot any time of the year. The big problem with wolves is they're smart, and, you know, most wolves are killed, incidentally, just by people seeing them. There's a, there's a few people that go out and target wolves, but for the most part, um, you know, hunting is never going to do anything but put a very, very small dent in the population. I think, you know, certainly our neighbors to the west, British Columbia, there's, there's a lot more um, press around the wolves and a lot more anti-hunting sentiment towards the wolves. But here in Alberta, I think we're still fairly practical about it. And we do have a, you know, a big ranching community here and. um, they are a, a big predator of livestock. Okay, thank you for that. You know, we kind of skipped over the, the introduction, um, TJ. Why don't you give us an idea of where you grew up, how it is that you came to be such a, an avid hunter, and, and what things played into that uh, as you were growing up? Well, and I guess it's a pretty weird thing. Is I don't come from a hunting family at all. Um, my folks were always super supportive of it, but you know they they never really hunted. And I don't know why it was just always a passion with me. And you know, mom and dad have pictures of me when I was five and six years old with you know outdoor life magazines, field and stream magazines. Um, you know, people like Jack O'Connor just captured my imagination even when I was a little kid and I can't explain it but it was you know my mom when I was probably about 14 you know she'd drive me out to the goose field and drop me off and come back and get me a couple hours later and that was kind of how I learned to hunt and I probably made every mistake you could possibly make hunting and then you know when I was old enough to drive myself then I was out deer hunting and it just I don't know why it just I really, really had that passion to be a hunter. Like, you know, I didn't become a hunter. I think I was born one. Um, And then kind of got into the television business. I actually used to fish professionally. I used to fish walleye tournaments and things like that and was approached by a a TV station out of Saskatchewan to do a, a television program there. So did that for six or seven years and, you know, really learned the television business. And I think that's a lot of the problem today with, you know, people getting into television. They don't actually understand the production side and everything else, but I really took the time to learn it. And then um, in 1999, decided to make the jump into hunting television. And there wasn't even any networks in Canada at that time. We started on the Outdoor Channel in the U.S. And, you know, we've been, we're in our 18th year of broadcast now. That's um, 18 years. That's amazing. Uh, one of the things that 
that you know about me, I'm an avid fisherman. I mean, I'm probably more of a fisherman than a hunter. So you you might be more likely to get me up there to do some fishing with you than you, you will with hunting. But uh, anything that gets me in the outdoors is, is what I like. So uh, we'll find a way to make that happen, I'm sure. Well, I hope we do. Now, Vanessa, she's almost like your twin uh, in that... <laughs> I, I can't hardly remember, except I think one year at um, Safari Club, she had some, no, you weren't there. You had something to do, and she was at the show, and you weren't. But other than that, I think every time I've seen you, I've seen her with you. Um, tell us about how you and Vanessa became partners and how that whole woman hunting thing with her started. Well, you know, it was funny, Kelly, when I met Vanessa, she'd never hunted at all. She'd never killed a gopher. She'd never killed anything. And um, she kind of expressed an interest in it. And, like, it was funny. I almost made it hard for her. I, you know, I just kind of really wasn't looking for a hunting partner at the time, but, you know, really liked her. And I could see the passion she had for it. So I kind of told her all the steps she had to go through with the hunter training and the, the firearms training and all that. And, you know, man, I thought that would kind of dissuade her from doing it. And then probably a week and a half later, she had all that done and said, let's go hunting. So I took her up to the Northwest Territories on a, a caribou hunt as one of the first hunts. And on her very first day of hunting ever, she killed um, a Boone and Crockett caribou, which turned out to be um, number four in the world with a muzzle loader. So I don't know how many people can say on their first day of hunting ever in their lives, um, you know, they killed a Boone and Crockett animal. But she has been hooked. And, you know, I, I've got a lot of buddies whose, you know, wives give them a lot of grief about going hunting and things like that. And it's kind of the opposite here. Um, you know, I get all the grief if I don't take her along. And I'm actually headed down to Florida next week on a gator hunt with some buddies and um yeah she i'm getting a lot of grief over that one because she isn't coming along on that one so it's a really good match for us um you know she's a hunter first and don't ever call her a huntress that's probably one of the things that bothers her the most she just wants to be called a hunter and you know she's happy to put her time in right beside the guys and you know do all the work the guys are doing as well and she just wants to be respected for a hunter and there's no doubt she really has that love of the hunt well, I know she likes TV and, and she loves the business end of it and she's very dedicated, very professional. Uh, I think she's a great partner for you. Uh, I know she's dedicated to hunting. Uh, one of the things that I have always wanted to hunt, uh, mainly because we've used the mountain goat as a as our animal symbol for McMillan fiberglass stocks for about 25 years. And the reason that we chose them is because not only is it one of the toughest hunts there is because they say that sheep territory ends and goat territory starts as you're going up the mountain. Um, So I know that they're really tough hunts, but they're also really tough animals. So that's why we chose it. But I think now I'm probably past that time in my life when I'm going to, you know, get out on a, a goat hunt because it can be really dangerous. And why don't you tell the, the, the listeners what a dedicated hunter Vanessa is. Well, you know, we all have that one animal in our lives that becomes our nemesis. And for Vanessa, it was goats. And, you know, we hunted with some great buddies, some great outfitters and some of the best goat areas there was. And, you know, put her time in and everything else. And um, she finally did kill her goat this year after five trips. But um, I guess the event you're talking about happened two years ago. 
um, we were hiking, and it was kind of late season. It was, um, I think, early October, and we were. It was quite a long hike into where we were going, and um, so we had to drive. It was about a two day drive from here, and then we had to drive up some logging roads, and we had to take a four wheeler in quite a ways. And from there, it was going to be about another six hour hike, and we made it in about four hours. And the going was pretty tough. It was some really really nasty blowdown country, and it was slippery with the snow or anything. And we kind of made it through all the really nasty stuff, and we're about an hour from where we were going to spike camp, and uh, just the ground gave out beneath Vanessa's feet and you know she slipped and fell on a what looked like a really innocent slope and um, she kind of screamed out and said I broke my arm I broke my arm and I was like come on there's no way you broke your arm so you know being the supportive person that I am went back to her and rolled her sleeve up and I mean it was more than broken I mean it was a terrible terrible fracture so you know here we were you know four or five hours hiking in and you know still several several hours from a hospital so um i got some sticks and we splinted it on with a a tensor bandage and um there was no option about getting a helicopter or anything in uh it was just too foggy and so i said to her you know i says are you okay to walk out and she was like yep let's do this and i'll tell you what i'd have been crying like a baby going out of there with that break she had but um you know we kept feeding her tylenol every couple hours and uh, she made the four-hour walk out then the the four-wheeler ride and the drive back to town and it was probably about one or two in the morning by the time we finally got her to a hospital and um, they did get her arm set there but once we got back home they just weren't happy with the way it was so she ended up undergoing surgery with that so and this was in October and our prime deer and elk hunting here is in November so you know we kind of thought her season was pretty much toast but um, I'd had a 6.5 Creedmoor built for myself actually and I said to her why don't you just try shooting it with one arm and see what happens and she says okay so you gotta realize she's got pins and screws and a cast and everything on her arm and she shot this gun a few times and she said yeah I think I can handle this so she went on that fall to kill I think a six point bull elk and a couple white tailed deer so um, pretty good story and then she finally did get her goat this year on her fifth trip so another happy ending to that one well, tell her congratulations for me. I know uh, sometimes when things go bad, they just seem to go bad all the time. We have customers that, for whatever reason, no matter how hard we try, stuff goes wrong with their order. And it, <laughs> they might order five different stocks, and, and somehow we'll figure out a way to mess it up each time. So, <laughs> yeah, I know how that stuff goes. But the, the reason I wanted to, you to tell our listeners that story is because I think it it epitomizes her devotion to hunting. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of it is the fact that she likes to be out there with you, but I suspect that uh, if if she had to, she'd go hunting without you. Oh, and she does all the time. Like, if I'm off doing something else, um, you know, she's out there. And um, this year when we were whitetail hunting, we were actually on two different places on a big piece of property and um you know she's kind of the perfect partner that way because by the time i ended up getting over to her she already had her deer all gutted out and dressed and ready all i had to do was back up the truck and help her load it oh man you got lucky tj definitely a keeper hey uh <laughs> looking in some of your uh, notes that we took before the uh the show um i know you you might want to Talk a little bit about the practical shooting ranges, finding the balance in the world of long-range shooting. That's a, a big subject for Kelly uh, in supporting the extreme long-range community with the new Beast stock that he just produced. Can you tell us a little bit about that in Canada? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is a real kind of passion of mine. And, you know, we don't consider ourselves long-range shooters by any means, but that doesn't mean we don't shoot long-range. And I think hunting is becoming so fractioned lately. You know, you're either on the side of long-range hunting or you're not. And I like to think we fall somewhere in the middle. I mean, for us, I mean, it's still all about getting as close as you can. But I've hunted enough and hunted enough places in the world that I know sometimes as close as you can get is seven or 800 yards. So... Um, I guess what we like to tell people is, you know, we're going to get as close as we can for the most ethical shot we can take. So, you know, I'll take a 400-yard shot off a bipod long before I'll take a 200-yard offhand shot. So it doesn't always mean getting as close as you can. It means getting as close as you can and having the best shooting position you have. And I guess the other thing is, you know, we don't go looking for long-range shots, but, you know, like I say, we hunt enough places all over the world that um, they're just comes times when you're going to have to take a long-range shot, and we like to have the gear to do it, and we like to have the experience to do it. So we practice an awful lot at long-range, and I guess for I should clarify a little bit, too. For us, long-range kind of ends at about 800 yards. We're ballistic reticle shooters. Um, you know, it's just a fast, easy system for us, and, you know, we'll certainly walk away from a shot you know, that we don't think we can make or if it's further than 800. But um, with that said, you know, we have a lot of appreciation for the people that do the long-range stuff. So I don't think you have to be on one side of that argument or the other. I think there's some pretty happy ground in the middle, and I think for us, we found it. So when you say you're ballistic reticle shooters, um, what kind of kit do you bring with you? Do you bring, a, you know, an applied ballistic kestrel? Do you bring anything with you to kind of help make that shot or...? No, not at all. We shoot the Zeiss uh, Rapid Z system, and it, to me, is the simplest ballistic reticle there is. You know, if I need to shoot 500 yards, I put number five on it and pull the trigger. If I need to shoot 700 yards, I put number seven on it. So I like to keep things really simple. And, you know, by no means is it a fine target reticle or anything like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, when we're big game hunting, we're shooting at a 10-inch target, and you want to hit somewhere in the middle of it, and that animal's going to die. So it's a really fast system for us is why we like it, and it's a really simple system. Um, There's just nothing to remember. And that doesn't mean I don't appreciate the guys that, you know, really get into it, you know, and with the turrets and the dial-ups and, you know, using the MOA reticles and everything else. But for us, I just really, really want to keep it simple. You know, I really like the way that you put that, uh, TJ, that you take the the best, most ethical shot that you can take, um, you know, based on what the position that you have. And uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think most of us feel the same way. And I'm also in your camp that we as hunters, we really need to be united. We need to have one front, and that is to let those liberals who would take all hunting away know that we're unified and it doesn't matter whether you hunt with a bow whether you hunt with a muzzleloader whether you you know your big thrill is to you know sit in a blind and wait for them to come to you or whether you like to stock whatever really turns you on is okay uh, provided we keep that word ethical in the forefront of everything that we do and now people oh, say, yeah. well, sh- shooting something at a 1,000 yards isn't ethical. Well, it is if the animal goes down and you're proficient enough and you have the equipment enough that you take that one shot and it, it's a humane kill, then then it is. So Absolutely. let's not judge what they choose to do as their passion for this sport. 
let's let's all get together and say, yeah, it's okay. I'm not into sitting in a box blind in Texas and waiting for the deer to come out and eat the corn, but that's a that's a viable way of hunting, and they do it all over Texas, and, and that's okay with me. Well, yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head there, Kelly, and I think we all need to find where we fit into hunting, but, you know, realize the fact that that's not the only way to hunt, and, you know, there's probably a lot of people don't agree, or, you know, maybe don't agree, but don't you know, hunt the way I do, but hopefully they can respect that. And like you say, as long as we can respect the way they do it. And I think people just need to worry about themselves and figure out how they fit into hunting, what they personally want out of hunting, and, you know, really quit worrying about what everyone else is doing. Well, unfortunately, a lot of people think that if somebody does something or has a passion for something that is different, that means that they must think that they're wrong. And that's not the case at all. Um, you know, I honor everybody's right to hunt and to choose whatever turns them on. And, and I think that that's the way that this should be done. And the only way that we're going to stay um, united in, in our fight to keep our rights and to be able to hunt is that if all of us are of one voice. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think we try to do that a lot on the show. We try to show like a, not only a lot of different hunts, but a lot of different methods of hunting. And honestly, I love experience different methods. You know, um, we do a lot of hunting with hounds. Uh, you know, we hound hunted when we were over in Africa. Um, you know, we do a lot of different things like that. We do some bow hunting. We do some muzzleloader hunting. And I just like to experience that. And I think when you go to different regions, you'll find a lot of, you know, hunting techniques that are unique to that region as well. And I don't know, for me, the more I travel, I think the more open-minded I become because all of a sudden I'm the tourist. We're getting close to the end of the show, TJ, and I want to make sure that, that our listeners get to know, what's the name of your television show? So it's Outdoor Quest TV. And it's broadcast in Canada only. Yeah, it's on Wild TV. Um, we also upload all of our past episodes to YouTube, so we've got um, you know loads and loads of free content on our YouTube channel as well. That was my next question. What's your YouTube channel address so that people can come and see the type of hunting that you do? Yeah, if people just go to OutdoorQuestTV.com, they can follow all our social media from there. And um, we're actually giving away a $20,000 African safari right now, so if it'd be really eligible? visiting our website right now. Am I eligible? You bet you are. Okay. We're going along oh. to film it as well, so it would be great to have you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well. well, I really would really rather one of my listeners uh, take the time to uh, put in for that and, and win it. So I think I'll uh, hold off. You and I will work out the date and time on a hunt that we can get together and do something fun. Sounds fair. So what's, what's your favorite animal? Everybody, every hunter's got one. I, I ask most everybody that. If you, if you could go on a hunt tomorrow, what would you hunt? Well, I mean, if I was limited to one, it would probably be bighorn sheep. And that's you know, been my passion for 30 years. And we're pretty lucky to be able to hunt sheep on a general tag here. So I do get to hunt sheep every year. So it's probably the one animal that I would say is my favorite one to hunt. And, you know, I'm probably getting a little long in the tooth, but I still seem to be able to do the backpack hunts and things like that. So I think that will remain my favorite until, you know, at least I get too old to do that anymore. 
Well, you know here that uh, you can you can take one Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep uh, in a lifetime and one desert bighorn sheep in a lifetime, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get drawn for both. I know guys that have 30 points, meaning that they've been putting in for 30 years and haven't been drawn yet, so uh, it's just one of those things. But yeah, yeah we're bighorn really sheep. Set up here, and it, let's I say, I'm sure that's why it is a passion of mine. It's just, you know, we do have that accessibility to it. Even though I'm older than you, I if I get drawn for sheep, which I put put in for each year, I'm definitely going, no matter what it takes. So, <laughs> well, I would hope so. Well, TJ, you've been a great guest. I really enjoyed having you on. Thanks for sharing your time with us. Uh, you're you're such a good guy, and and I think the next time we have you on, we'll have Vanessa on too because I think she represents hunting and uh, in the world. Uh, uh, for women as well as anybody I know, and I think it'd be great to have you both on the show. Sounds good, Kelly, and uh, pleasure as always. Thanks again. Appreciate you being here. And thank I'd you. like to thank all of our listeners for uh, listening to us. Uh, stick with us for the next couple of minutes. We're going to take a short commercial break, and we'll be right back. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. For over 40 years, Macmillan USA has been at the leading edge of the gunstock industry. The company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form, function, and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks. From tactical to hunting to competitive shooting, Macmillan stocks are designed to dominate. Their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the Macmillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at Macmillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. You are listening to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Now back to the show. Hi, this is Kelly McMillan. Thanks for sticking around. Uh, glad to have you back to, for the second half of the show. We've got a great guest coming up. Uh, wanted to thank Zev for his input, asked some, some great questions in that uh, first segment. You know, we don't get a chance to just talk a lot because we want to give our um, guest as much time as we possibly can. But, uh, you know, Zev does a really good job here doing all the technical stuff, getting everything set up for us, and, and I like his input. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate yeah, that. Yeah. Our next guest is is uh, 
uh, A-class hunter. I think he's probably been hunting since he was young. Um, uh, he graduated from the same high school that I did, Paradise Valley High School here in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, he's a, a few years younger than I am. He's a badass wrestler, too. And uh, so, you know, Terry and I have a lot in common. The fact that we like to hunt, we went to the same school, and we know a lot of the same people. But Terry's different than most everybody I know because even though I know a lot of people who are really big into conservation, um, he's probably the most active, most prominent hunter that I know that spends as much time on the conservation end as, as he does out in the field. So I'd like to introduce Terry Herndon. Thanks for being on the show, Terry. Well, thanks, Kelly. I'm glad you had me on. I, I look forward to it. Well, I did a little of your job by telling people where you were from, but why don't you give us a little bit of uh, background, how you, how you grew up and where and how you got into hunting and, and why it's such a big part of your life today. Well, I got into hunting because uh, my family was hunters. My dad was uh, with a big family that, that all hunted. We At one time, we'd have camps of 50 to 60 people from the family that would go up into Wiki up Arizona, and we'd hunt mule deer every year, and that was my big thing. Or Most of the kids were out there uh, wanting to go to the county fair, or the Maricopa fair, county fair. I was drawing mule deer pictures on a piece of paper and getting in trouble in class. But um, my first recollection of, of hunting was actually – um, must have been maybe four years old, walking along with my dad, my my hand in his back pocket, kind of keeping up with him. He was six four and a half, you know, so it was a big long strides. And uh, <clears throat> watching him shoot this a deer, and then just blew me away. I had all kinds of different emotions, you know. Of course, at that time, it was a Bambi thing going on with Disney, so <clears throat> I had to fight myself to make believe that it wasn't Bambi. But in the long run, it was something that stuck in my mind and how much we enjoyed each other and the company we had at the camps and camaraderie the familyness I, I think the biggest issue we're having right now in hunting is the the family's not in hunting like it used to be when you and i were kids but born and raised in phoenix arizona um and uh, went to school like you said over at paradise valley uh went on to phoenix college for two years in russell and asu for two years in russell over there and uh you know started my family had uh a couple daughters in fact your daughter and my daughter went to high school together it looks like uh which is makes it a really small world but um, all in all, that's that's where I got my hunting passion from is my family and, and being out there and getting away from the city life. You know, I really envy you, and there's a lot of people out there who get started hunting late in life. Uh, I was one. My dad hunted when we lived in Alaska, but I was like 9, 10, 11, 12. He didn't think I was quite old enough to hunt at that time. Uh, so he took my brother, who's two years older, and, and my brother got to hunt and fish, and, and I didn't get to while we were in Alaska. We came down to Arizona. He retired from the Air Force, and he started the business, and the only time after that time he hunted was when I begged him to go on a hunt with me. So I actually took him hunting. So I didn't yeah. have that drive like you did with the family to to be part of that. So And, of course, you know, when we're wrestling and playing football and wrestling right during the middle of the hunting season, uh, there's more th important things, uh, you know, for us at that time, at least for me. Uh, so I didn't really understand why, how much I would really enjoy hunting until I got a little bit later. Uh, I think once you get the chance to enjoy it fully, uh, a lot of a lot of people get into it and they go out for a weekend. They, you know, get up early and walk and walk and walk like we used to do when we were younger before we figured out how optics work. Um, and they get discouraged, and I think that's why a lot of folks don't go back to it. But, uh, you know, it's uh, even when I played football, I remember 
breaking my hand at North North Ballot or North High School uh, on a Saturday or on a Friday night, and we got up super early and drove up to Wiki up to go hunting. The next day, my hand was swollen up like a balloon. My dad didn't know about it. I kept putting it in my pocket so he couldn't see it, and uh, finally got a shot at a deer and shot, and it hurt so bad that I, I said a couple bad words in front of Dad, and he goes, what's going on with you? He looked at my hand, and we had to drive back home that afternoon and put a cast on it. So that's how much I loved hunting. <laughs> But uh, you know, that, that's that, the way it was with me. I mean, any chance I had a chance to get out, that's what we did. Hey, Terry Zev here. That's interesting because our, our last guest, T.J. Schwanke, uh, related a story where his wife broke her hand uh, on the way to a hunt. And I got to ask you um, to parallel kind of like our hunting practices uh, with what we heard earlier with T.J. as far as using, uh, you know, a reticle just to, to do all the work. What kind of shooting do you do when you hunt? Are you a long-range shooter, mid-range? How would you classify yourself? I classify myself as getting as close as I can and, and taking the shot. I, I have nothing against people who can shoot a long distance, unfortunately. I don't have the equipment for it. I, I shoot a really good gun. Um, it's nothing like a custom, but it's a great gun, and it does its job out to 300 and 400 yards. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll, um, I'll glass the animals up and see which is the best uh, course of action to getting to the animal. Of course, you're always checking your thermals, whether it's going up or down, morning or afternoon. Uh, what kind of cover you have, what kind of noise that you can kind of drown yourself out with. A lot of guys don't realize that when the airplanes go over the top, of it, you can cover some ground pretty quick because it kind of covers itself up, you know, all those things that come into play. Um, and then I try to get set up as close as I can, get steady. Uh, I usually shoot off a bipod and um, get settled in and, you know, do the range and take the shot. That's that's pretty much how I shoot. Um, it used to be when I was younger, I'd walk until I'd jump a buck and I'd shoot it. And... You know, that was back when I could do 10 miles a day and then carry it back and my shoulders to, you know, 10 miles back. And those days are gone. So once I understood how to use a good set of 15 uh, power binoculars, my whole hunting uh, style changed. Uh, and, and I think that's something a lot of folks are going to now. I want to circle back to something you said a little bit earlier because I want to tell you that I know exactly what you were talking about. When I first started hunting, we went out there with some guys from work, and we didn't have a clue what we were doing, so we did exactly what you said. We walked around in the forest, expecting that we would actually run into something and see it. Of course, I hunted three different years and never saw a thing. You know, little did I know that by, you know, walking around, they heard me long before I would see them and and they'd take off. So, learning how is definitely... Um, something that makes the experience a lot more um, enjoyable for the first couple of times you go and hunt. And if you don't yep. have somebody to mentor you, it's very difficult to learn. You know, you're you're seeing things on TV. If you're watching a, a hunting show, you see about about five percent of what it really takes to hunt, and that's all they can really afford to put on, uh, you know, thirty minute episode. So you don't understand. Uh, and I think that one of the things that we need to do is figure out how we can get kids involved and, and teach them how to hunt so that they don't get discouraged and say, hey, I never see anything. I'm not going to go out anymore. And that's a great segue. Uh, I have in my notes here that Terry was awarded the Mentor of the Year uh, Award from the Arizona Game and Fish for his support in introducing youth in Arizona to the outdoors. So tell us a little bit about that. Um. When I was about, <clears throat> excuse me, it's about 32 to 33 years old, I, I looked at my wife then, Margie, and uh, God bless her. She passed away a few years ago, but 
Um, I told her, I said, you know, honey, I just, I just don't feel like I'm giving back to something I love so much. And I said, I want to do something. And, um, that's something ended up being a, uh, a youth deer camp up in unit 23, just on the other side of pumpkin center. And, you know, I think we scraped together three or 400 bucks that year. And we had maybe two or three kids in camp. And, uh, that was back in probably 1993, I believe it was. And so from there, um, I had such a great satisfaction for taking these kids out and teaching them a few things about hunting. And the most important thing I teach kids about hunting is just the entire experience. It's not just, right? The questions I ask the kids nowadays in our camps on Saturday night is, what's your idea of a perfect hunt? And of course, the little boys say shooting a big monster mule deer, which, you know, all little boys want to do. And little girls will say being with my daddy or being with my mommy. And I tell the kids, I said, now put those two things together. I said, and you pretty much have it fixed. And then we go through their experience they had that morning. I asked them, remember how cold it was? What was the first sound you, that you heard when you got it in the woods? Did you hear the birds chirp? Did you hear coyotes singing in the background? Remember the smell of the sage? Any of that stuff. I tell the kids, I said, those are experiences and those are the things in hunting that you really want to remember. Being that time with your, your parents or your grandparents, uh, maybe seeing your first deer. And I said, and don't get discouraged. I said, because a lot of times people go deer hunting and they won't see a deer for a couple of days. And then all of a sudden they find their deer and they shoot it. And then you get, you've been a successful deer hunter. I said, and another thing, actually you're a deer killer. Then I said, as a deer hunter, I said, if you're looking for deer and you see deer, guess what? You're a successful deer hunter. You went out and hunted deer and found deer. So remember that's, a, that's a successful adventure. But um, getting back to what got me started was the, the joy I seen in the eyes of the kids once they've actually seen a deer and the, in the, you know, how ecstatic they were whenever they actually shot a deer. And it took me back to that same very time when I was, I believe I was 12 years old. I shot my first buck and, uh, you know, I felt all those emotions that I felt when I shot my buck and I could see it in the eyes and the excitement of the kids. And man, I tell you what, there's no feeling in the world like that to be able to Go back in time and remember one of your most special times in your life if you're a hunter. Uh, and, and, you know, the funny part about it is at the time I shot my buck, I thought to myself, man, my dad's going to be so proud of me. I shot my first buck. And you know, a lot of these kids nowadays, you know, we take them out and they really don't understand the feelings they're going to feel. And, you know, you'll see them shoot an animal and, you know, they'll cry a little bit. And then they'll say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm crying. I said, no. I said, it's all part of it. I said, you have to respect what you shoot. I said, every one of these animals that we hunt and we kill, you know, they enjoy their life as much as we do. I said, so if you ever take an animal's life and you feel like there's no remorse, I said, you might want to get out of shooting animals. I said, because now you just become a killer and not a hunter anymore. I said, that's conservation right there. So that's how I I get the kids involved. I I really and truly love seeing these kids grow up. I've got kids that were uh, 10 years old in my camp, you know, 20 years ago now that are 30 years old and they're my mentors in these these camps. And you know, there's no better way of judging uh, uh, a positive outcome than to see these kids that you actually teach come back and actually teach kids. Well, that's one of the things I love most about you, Terry. I know when we first got to know each other better, it was through the Mule Deer Foundation, and I know that you spend a lot of time in, in working with Mule De- the Mule Deer Foundation and conservation and it, it, not just in Arizona, but but primarily. Uh, as a matter of fact, this morning you were just not too far from where we're at right now um, on a project, right? Now, that's correct. We actually were meeting with the National Forest Service, Arizona Game and Fish Department, and the ranchers on the Yavapai Ranch up here 
off of Williamson Valley Road. I drove right past Talking Rock this morning, so I thought about you. Um, and it was a great meeting. Um, Fred Reskin is the rancher. He's the only rancher up here that actually gives you access to his Ranch. All these other ranches now have been shut down. Most guides and outfitters has actually got them tied up to where they got the lease on. That's where they, you know, nobody else can go in and hunt. But Fred keeps his open, and why he keeps it open is because, you know, he works with the game and fish quite a bit. And he last year, he was actually introduced to the Mule Deer Foundation, and we found this to be a, a super project and a super good partnership that I believe is going to help our mule deer. And when we were, when we meet these ranchers, uh, you know, there's there's times when a rancher says, I need water for my cows. And I just look at them straight up. I said, I'm not in the business of cows, but if, it, if you have mule deer and you're going to keep your water deer around, I said, I'll help you with that water. I said, if it helps my mule deer. And all he has to do is say, yep, we got mule deer. And, you know, and the only thing we ask of these ranchers is that they keep the waters on year-round that we help them work with, and they also uh, get either foot traffic um, accessibility or, you know, full accessibility onto their ranch so, so hunters can actually hunt. And also people who like to just come out and watch wildlife. I mean, we get so wrapped up into the hunting aspect of things that we forget that there's people out there that are not anti-hunters that don't have a problem with people hunting that love to see wildlife as much as we do, and we need those people on our side. Most of the hunters don't realize how much effort it takes in communication between landowners, game and fish, all of that to make this happen. I know the the North Valley chapter of the Mule Deer Foundation has been putting a lot of time and effort into um, areas not too far from here over on uh, the east side of uh, I-17 in bringing water back to the to where the mule deers have been basically leaving the area because there's no water for them. So in Arizona, we talked about that with uh, Mr. Voiles. The biggest challenge that we have in Arizona is is getting water to the animals. And, you know, other states have other challenges, but wouldn't you say that that's the one key thing to making the, the habitat livable for a, a number of different species is to make sure that they have constant water? Oh, Absolutely. And, you know, when we look at these waters, it's not just one water catchment or, you know, a game catchment or even a water tank itself. You want to look at how far away the next one is and how far away the next one is. And and the perfect scenario is, is that you'd want to have uh, waters about every three and a half miles away from each other in circumference. And the reason why you have that is these animals do not have to walk as far to get water. And a lot of times their bedding areas, uh, when they only have one water source, is eight, nine miles from their water. Imagine you and I having to get up and having to walk eight or nine miles to go get ourselves a drink and come back and sit on our couch and watch TV, <laughs> it wouldn't be much fun. So, you know, the thing that you got to look at is you have to be able to put them in specific spots and understand, you know, that they need uh, good cover coming in and feel comfortable about, with drinking. You can have all the water you want out there, and if a, if a mule deer or any wildlife doesn't feel comfortable about walking in and taking a drink, they won't come and get a drink. They're afraid of getting eaten. And, um, and when you spray it out like that, too, you know, you take that, predator aspect out of it as well because uh, these mountain lions we have are, are quite smart you know they're cunning they'll sit by a water tank you know you know all day when they know the deer are going to be there and that's how they get their groceries every week you know they got to make a living too and uh, you know so if you spread out the water it's more of a guessing game for them so that gives these these mule deer a chance to you know get out there and get some water and get back without being stressed out you know when these does are uh, growing their their fawns you know they're, they're trying to grow twin fawns if they don't have all the right uh, ingredients to make that baby come out, they'll actually absorb that fetus back into their system or they'll abort it completely instead of having a fawn where it was going to cost her life and then also the fawn's life. 
a mule deer buck when he's growing his antlers is similar to you know a, a doe trying to grow a baby inside of it. it takes that much energy out of them so the less foot traffic they have to get to to get where they need in life to be sustainable the, you know the better chance they're going to grow healthier and stronger throughout the year one of the things that we've talked about is the declining mule deer population. I think it's declining everywhere, but I think Arizona has one of the biggest mule deer populations in the, the country, so we feel it really here. Um, I know there's a number of different factors. Uh, TJ mentioned that wolves, uh, where they're from, is a big predatory problem, and they're really smart. And, and I know the mountain lion is, too. I talked to Rector Voiles, and he said that we've got a, a full contingent of mountain lions uh, as full as, as this uh, topography will maintain. So uh, the fact that we have to be very cognizant about what we do and how that positively affects the mountain lions without negatively affecting the, the uh, mule deer, it's a big part of how we go about the conservation efforts we put in. Yeah, it, it is. And, you know, a, a lot of people don't um, know about it, but there's, a, there's actually a, a good read called the North American Model. North American Model is set up, and it shows you how everything works together in order to make everything work. And it's a conservation cycle is what it is. And human beings are right in the middle of it. If you think about it, Kelly, on a lot of these uh, national parks, let's say Grand Canyon, uh, no, I'm sorry, not Grand Canyon, but let's say Yellowstone National Park, where they've, they've allowed these wolves to go in there and they decimated just about every wildlife animal there is in there. Well, the only thing missing in the predator uh, chain is, is human beings. They've closed that down to hunting, just like our Grand Canyon National Park up here. They closed it to hunting. Now you have a problem with the buffalo going up there because there's no pressure to keep them off. You know, once you take the, the uh, number one predator out of the equation, everything changes. And that, that cycle, that circle, all of a sudden there's, a, there's an open spot. And when that open spot, that's where you make your mistakes. Now, if they were to use the, you know, us as humans as predators to go in and control uh, the wildlife like it's supposed to, instead of just introducing a pack of wolves that grows and grows and grows and re- finally runs out of food source, you know, they don't care. The, the wolves are going to go and they're going to kill and they're going to have, you know, have their food and, Unfortunately, they do like to kill just for the sake of having fun. They, they like to play with their prey. Um, human beings, for the most part, won't go out there and kill something and leave it lay, you know, unless they're just a killer. Uh, we usually try to, you know, eat what we kill, and that's the way it should be. But if you take us out of the equation and you only put one source of predators in there, it's not an equal value for the wildlife inside the, the parks out here. And I think that's where we get hurt the worst uh, because a lot of times humans try to figure everything out. And it's already been figured out. You know, just let it take its course and let us be a part of that cycle. Well, unfortunately, a lot of uh, people think that if we just left the animals alone, they would do just fine. But we know because we've watched how the the populations of these animals across the country have come and gone without much interface with the humans. Uh, it really takes a management strategy in order for these herds to survive and to thrive. And if we just ignore them and pretend like they they can take care of themselves, um, a lot of bad stuff happens. That's a fact. I mean, if you, if you look at, you know, ranchers as a, as a group of folks that a lot of people don't realize the ranchers are probably one of the first conservation groups that ever walked the face of the earth because they've gone out here in these areas where there's no water at. Think about what the water was like back in the 1800s prior to damming up Roosevelt Lake and things like that. We had so many tributaries. We had so many little rivers and so many little streams. 
that went all the way across our state, and all of a sudden they plugged that off. Well, there's no water anymore. So these ranchers came out here and they dug, you know, water tanks and, you know, spring boxes and all these other things just to allow water for their, for their cattle. Well, in return, what they've done is they've actually made an oasis for these deer and mule deer and everything else that lives out in the areas where they have their ranches at that used to be there prior to us plugging off the water so we could have water to drink out of our faucets and take baths in and do whatever we do. Um, a lot of folks don't remember that far back, but if you do a little history reading and, uh, you know, understand what our state looked like in the 1800s compared to they do now, obviously the encroachment has been the biggest issue we've had. Human beings are our worst enemies when it comes to um, wildlife, and it's not the hunters. It's the people who um, actually go out there and, and they build homes in the middle of, uh, like, the winter ranges and things like that where these, where these animals have to go to. You know, there's no thought pattern to it. They just like the area. They think it's beautiful, and they plant a house on it. Can't say as I blame them. But there's always, a, you know, something that happens when there's an action to every re- reaction to every action you have, and that's been the biggest issue. I think encroachment has probably killed us worse than anything else as far as all wildlife is concerned. Drought's been the second biggest issue we have, and predators has actually been pretty bad, too. I think it was 1992 or 94, I can't remember. Uh, they had a, um, you know, went to ballot that do away with uh, trapping in Arizona on, on public land. And when that happened, everything that eats meat just exploded. I mean, you have more, you have more coyotes, you have more, even though you couldn't catch mountain lions back in the day, you have more lions for some reason. You know, you have more fox that eat all the turkey eggs everywhere you go. And, you know, they all have to live, too, but there's, there's a point where they have to be controlled. And once that control's gone, then it kind of runs amok, and we have issues with, uh, with some of the other wildlife paying the price. But uh, that's, a big, that's a big issue there. Well, you, I wanted to talk to you about your hunting. Uh, we've talked a lot about conservation. I really appreciate you bringing some of this stuff to, to light. But let's, uh, let's talk about you. I know, because I follow you on Facebook, you've been excited a couple of different times this season. And uh, uh, I can't remember, did you get drawn for antelope? I didn't get drawn for antelope this year. Um, actually, I usually go to New Mexico and hunt them every year. I love hunting antelope, but I'm going to give it a rest this year. I actually was, I won a, uh, a caribou hunt in, on the north range of the Brooks over in, in Alaska, and that's coming up in August. And then right after that, I, I was drawn for that moose hunt. So uh, I'll be pretty busy in the fall. It's going to be a lot of fun. Well, I know about the moose hunt, but tell everybody about it because that, that's pretty special. You're a pretty lucky guy. Well, yeah, we, you know, we have the expo up in the uh, um, Western Hunter and uh, expo up in uh, Salt Lake City every year, and that's part of the Mule Deer Foundation that has that, and that's our, kind of our convention we have up there. Actually, it is our convention we have. But they also have a chance to get drawn for um, a whole bunch of different, every species of animals that are over in Utah, and the application fee is only $5. And, you know, it's kind of cool to even break down the non-resident people can actually have their own little section that they can win. Uh, once-in-a-lifetime hunts, and then they have the residence where they can uh, win the once-in-a-lifetime hunts. I applied for all of them. I think it was $565 for a uh, $5 entry for everyone. Just, you know, I just figured, well, you know, I might as well take a chance. And I got home after the expo about three days later, and I started getting my phone just starts blowing up on text messages from a lot of my buddies up there in Utah that I work with. And, hey, congratulations on the hunt. It looks like you're hunting in Utah. So what, what, are, you guys, what are you guys talking about, you know? And they sent me the Photoshop uh, shot of the, uh, the once-in-a-lifetime moose hunt. And I actually drew the one that the residents tried to get, which was incredible odds in, in order to get that. I mean, I, 
I think you have better odds of winning the lottery. Um, but yeah, I was pretty pumped up. I was beyond myself. I never thought in my life I would ever be able to hunt the Shire's moose. And now this chance here, I'm going to get to hunt the Shire's moose. And not only do I get to hunt the moose, I get to hunt in one of the best spots in Utah where they live. You know, Terry, I'm so excited for you. And, and I got to tell all of our listeners, there is nobody who deserves it more than you. As much time and energy as you put into uh, conservation and giving back to the community and making sure that, that young kids uh, have an opportunity to learn about hunting, uh, I'm so happy for you. And uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. And I would love to have you back on the show next year after you've had both of these hunts so you could come back and tell us about it. I'd be happy to. I, I very, very much enjoy it. Actually, my my now fiance Tammy's going to go with me to uh, shoot caribou. She's that one. There was for two hunters, so she's going to get a chance to get into the hunting. She's really excited about it. So maybe we'll be able to tell you her side of it too, which I think is super important to get more people involved in hunting and fishing. Well, I look forward to it, Terry. Thanks for being on. Uh, I want to thank you for having me, Kelly. I want to thank all of our listeners for being with us today. Uh, great show today. Um, join us next Friday on Voice America Sports Channel for another episode of Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Thanks for now. Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week.